Manipulation and Inspiration, Befeh Rach. Moadim to you. I'm speaking to you from the shores of the Kinneret, from Nofkin Osar, where we are for Pesach, uh, with very limited access to Sforim, uh, and, and very limited access at the moment, in fact, no access to internet. Um, so hence, the, the, you might not have a source sheet by the time this goes out. And uh, anyway, we will we'll learn the piece of Gomorrah and we'll discuss it uh, as the matmon for today. The Gemara on Daf Yud Aleph, Amud Aleph, at, at the bottom of that, talks about the uh, posuk, Kasher Ya'anurto Ken Yerbevechen Yifrotz, that the more the Egyptians uh, afflicted and tortured the Jewish people, the more they multiplied and expanded. Uh, but the Gemara points out that the grammar of that sentence is inaccurate. Ken rabu v'chein partzu It should, the second part of the, te- of the second part of the sentence should be in the past tense, which would then be that the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread out in the past tense, not the more they would or the more they will multiply and spread out. Amar Lakish, the Rish Lakish explains this by saying, Ruach HaKodesh Bevasar Tamken. This is Hashem articulating a rule of nature, so to say. This is a fact that the more you oppress the Jewish people, the more they will multiply and the more they will spread. This is part of their nature. This is part of the way the Jewish people is designed. This is a part of the way that the, um, uh, the, the nature is designed. It has that kind of effect. Don't think you can wipe them out by torturing them. That's not going to happen. And in understanding this, um, I saw a quotation, and I've said to you many times, I don't normally like to quote something that I haven't seen inside because I like to see the context and make sure that uh, the meaning is uh, as, as we think it is, and sometimes we find the things are quoted out of context, and if you read them in context, they mean sometimes things that are subtly different and sometimes things that are vastly different. And today we tend to rely on out-of-context quotations rather than seeing things in the source. But I didn't have access to, to the source of a sefer called Hakol Yaakov, um, which was written uh, prob- probably a, a hundred years ago, by a, a man by the name of Rabbi Eliezer Yaakov Rozhnitz. Uh, and he says something very powerful uh, on this here and explains that it's all part of the original promise that Hashem made to Avram. I will make you into a great nation. But that word gadol has two meanings. The word gadol can mean great in numbers, can mean big, large, and gadol can also mean like when we talk about a godl, a great human being, it can mean large in stature. Uh, and that is the nature of, of the Hebrew language, that when a word can mean more than one thing, such as in this case, gadol can mean many, it can mean much, it can, and it can mean great in the, in the more intangible sense, in the more spiritual sense of greatness. It's the same word. So unlike the English language where you have many synonyms, you have lots of different words that all say the same thing, but with slight subtleties. And that's why we need thesauruses when we write English to figure out what exact word would be the right one to use. In Hebrew, it's the opposite. Uh, the, the vocabulary is very small, and one word has many usages. But what's important to understand is, as the Telzerov says in, in, he says many times, but in, in his essay in the Shiradat called Nishmata Torah, that the the different meanings of, of the words in Hebrew are not disconnected. They're not random. 
that all these different meanings are connected. In fact, the they are the inner meanings of the word. So you have an outer meaning of the word, which is the superficial meaning of the word. But you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. There's a meaning nested within the meaning, nested within the meaning. And so it goes, all these different meanings are deeper understandings of that same idea, of that same concept. So when we talk about Gadol, whether we're talking about something or someone very big, somebody very tall, a child might say, I saw an Adam Gadol, a very big man, and all he means is that the man was uh, was tall. It doesn't mean that the man was, was brilliant or the man was a tzaddik. The child doesn't comment on that. Uh, but if a great rabbi said, I met an Adam Gadol, you'll know that what he's referring to is not the size of the, of the human being, but Adam Gadol, meaning a great human being. So that idea of bigness and greatness, the Telzerov explains, are linked. Greatness is the soul of bigness. Bigness is a pure quantitative word. It's a physical word. It has a physical form. But there is a spiritual essence to that word. There is a spiritual soul to that word, which is the gadlut of greatness. So when Hashem says, it could mean both forms of greatness. And initially, the Bnei Israel, we say in the Haggadah, the Bnei Israel excelled in Egypt. They were exceptional there. And it was that was that was part of what Paro began to fear, that they were dominating the society, the economy, the politics of, of Mitzrayim. And so his original intention was to remove their greatness, to remove their exceptionality, to make them ordinary. And Hashem says, you should know that if you're going to do that, if you're going to take away the meaning of Gadol as exceptional, then I'm going to have to fulfill my promise with the other meanings of Gadol. And you're going to land up with a nation that has become multitudes, that they have grown in, in numbers. And it's important to understand that those two uh, ideas are some, sometimes in, in, in counter-relationship with, with, one of, with one another, kind of inversely proportionate, that very often, uh, if you have the essence, if you have greatness in a qualitative sense, then you might not have greatness in the quantitative sense. And when you have it in the quantitative sense, you might be sacrificing quality. It often, often they don't go together. And so, for example, in our own times, we often talk about the fact that there are probably more people learning Torah today than at any time in Jewish history. Uh, more yeshivot, more publishing houses and printing presses and sfarim being printed. There is an incredible number. This is a, a, a miraculous uh, reality of today and something very wonderful and celebratory. But we also need to appreciate that in the olden days, to the period before the war, when the number of people really learning Torah was much smaller. Take Lithuania, the whole population of Lithuania was only 100,000. So how many of them were in yeshivas? Or maybe 120,000. And then there was some Poland and there was Hungary, there were some other areas, but the number of people really involved in deep learning uh, before the war was much smaller than it is today. But yet, if you, you go into any yeshiva and you see what they're learning and you listen to a shir of a Rosh Yeshiva, the shirim are built on the works of those times and the works of the 18th century, the 19th century in, in Eastern Europe, when the numbers were small, but the quality was amazing. Uh, and, and today we don't have that kind of quality. We're not kind of getting the same level of innovation, of new thinking, of, of, of different ways of learning. And, and we're not quite getting that. We're getting other things. But, but, but that depth that was present during the period that we had fewer people learning, 
is not something that we're getting now. So sometimes there's a give and take. Sometimes there's a trade-off that when the quantity is increased, the quality is decreased. And that's the principle that the, uh, as Reish Lakish says, Ruach HaKodesh Mevesar Tam, that this was Hashem telling the Bnei Israel and the world that this is the way the world is designed and this is the way Am Yisrael is designed. That when they are not Mitsuyanim, when they are not exceptional, they will be large in numbers. Uh, and the contrast probably applies as well as we've said, when they are large in numbers, they might not be as exceptional. And we have the same idea of a word that has more than one meaning in the very next piece of Gomorrah. As we turn over the page onto Amud Bet, uh, the question is, what does the word Befarech mean? Vayavidu Mitzrayim Bnei Yisrael Befarech. They worked Bnei Yisrael with backbreaking and and just with work that broke people. That's parach. But Rabbi Loza says parach means something else. It means perach, with a soft mouth. Says Rashi, Meshachum bidvarim, uvischarit. So he started off just persuading them and asking them to come and help. And then he paid them, and that way he got them into the working ethic, uh, and then he enslaved them afterwards. What is that about? And I've often said that just as we have to use Torah to understand life, we also have to use life to understand Torah. Uh, and I, I always think in, in, in this example of the occasion when, when I was asked to try and figure out, this was at the end of the apartheid area, area in South Africa when uh, South Africa was preparing itself to re-enter global markets. It was previously uh, somewhat uh, protected from global markets because of sanctions, and now South Africa would have to compete internationally. And it just wasn't set up to compete internationally. And one of the reasons is because the productivity standards were so low. And in talking to to an, an African, a black African man, and explaining it to him that I was concerned about this, why productivity levels, particularly among the black African people of South Africa, were so low, he explained to me that uh, a... In the African culture, being asked to do something, being told to do something, is incredibly rude and undermining and humiliating. And that's not the way they speak to each other. And he described to me in their language how it works, that everything is posed as a request for help. Uh, I have this problem, do you think you could help me? It doesn't matter if I'm the CEO and you're the sweeper. Uh, I would still say in their culture, um, I have this problem, the, the, the floors are not, are not clean and I've got some people coming. Uh, do you think you could help me tidy it up? And then they would jump in and say, of course, you don't worry, we'll take care of this. So there's a high level of motivation when people are asked for help rather than given instructions. Now, in Western business, we just contract that we're allowed to abuse each other and give people instructions. Um, that's kind of accepted, but that doesn't mean it's validating. That doesn't mean that it's dignified. And I believe that the the lesson that this uh, African man taught me applies not only to African culture, but to all cultures. None of us like to be told what to do. All of us respond well when we're asked for help. And Paro understood that. The Major says in, in Bamir Baraba in Parsha Tesvav, When it says that Paro said, let's get wise with the Jewish people. What was the wisdom? He said to them, please, Jewish people, just help me. I need your help. And that's the meaning of Perach. How did he do it? Natal Sal He took a basket and a spade and he began working. Anybody who saw this happening would surely 
want to help. They wouldn't stand by watching the king uh, clean up and make and make bricks. Um, all the Jewish people went and with great energy they helped him using all their effort because they were strong and powerful the Medra said immediately Paro instructed the police there the supervisors to count up how much work they were doing at their best when they're fully motivated and then Paro said to them that's your quota for every day. And then he just drove them with fear rather than with, with inspiration. At first, they were inspired to help the king. And then he said, this is not about helping the king. This is just about enslaving you. I don't need your help. In fact, the cities that you're building are just going to sink back into the mud. There's no purpose in your work. There's no meaning in your work. It's just slavery. But if you don't do it, you will be whipped and you will be tortured. And so he hooked them in uh, in a manipulative way, and then he forced them in a way of, of of compulsion. And we need to be careful that in our management and leadership of people, we don't land up doing the same things. When we interview people for a job, we describe what a wonderful job it is, how meaningful it is, how purposeful it is, how happy we'd be to have you join our company. And then a little while after the person joins, very often they become disillusioned because at the end of the day, it's just a job like any other job. And, and they're driven by numbers and they're driven by quotas and they're driven by productivity levels. And all that meaning and purpose that was spoken about in the interview is not referenced again. Um, and that becomes very disheartening to people. So that idea in management and leadership, we, we see here in that word, beferach, because perach, perach, again, using this idea of the Telzerov, that the inner meaning and the outer meaning are part of the same word. Perach means torture. And perach also means perach, manipulation, speaking to somebody softly. Because sometimes we torture people directly and sometimes we torture them indirectly. Sometimes we hook people in with nice soft words of motivation and inspiration and then we flip and we don't keep that up and we, we default to old systems of management where we manage people simply by output and performance and that becomes perach. And when it's perach, it's, it's like slavery, it's meaningless work. People become disengaged, people uh, disassociate from their work, they look for other ways of satisfying themselves, and then we wonder why productivity levels and innovation levels drop as a result of that. All of that in the meaning of the word perach in these couple of lines of the wisdom of the Gemara. <laughs> 